This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. So sometimes in uh, Buddhist writing, this world of ours uh, is called samsara. Samsara uh, kind of was an idea that there is a circle of life and uh, um, life after life we're reborn into that circle. And uh, you know, in Indian society, this came from Hinduism, Indian society at the time, um, this was not such a good thing. I mean, we kind of think, oh, gee, it would be great to have another life. <laughs> <laughs> but they thought, oh, it's the same thing over and over again. And you know, Life was not so easy, uh, especially if you weren't a member of the upper class in India. So, so samsara was thought of as kind of the place of suffering. Um, when, when Buddha taught the first noble truth that there was suffering, in fact, um, he asked, what is suffering? And, and, he said, and then he mentioned all the common things. <coughs> Samsara. He said, birth is suffering. Death is suffering. <coughs> Not being able to be with the people you love is suffering. Having to be with the people you don't like is suffering. <laughs> you know, very common things. We all know. This is samsara. <coughs> In Sanskrit, the word samsara uh, it means world, and it also means wandering. So it's interesting. In samsara, we're wandering. In fact, you know, in the dedication, we chant uh, uh, to lead wandering beings to uh, enter the right path. Yeah. You know, so, so there's beings in samsara okay. to enter the right path. Um, so samsara is the place of life and death. In fact, the Japanese word for samsara is Shoji, which means birth and death. And samsara is the realm of our karma. Our actions, everybody's actions, the effects of those actions, multiplying out forever. And we know sometimes that in this ceaseless cascade, cause and effect, action and reaction. We can be kind of tossed about by the waves. Every thought we have, every feeling, every desire can kind of push us around. And that's what samsara is, being caught up in all of that. And, you know, we say the relief from samsara is nirvana. And we, we think of nirvana as lying beyond someplace, you know, the other shore, where there is no suffering. The word nirvana means uh, extinguishing, like blowing out uh, a, a candle, or cooling, like if the soup is too hot, we would say, uh, put it aside and let it nirvana. <laughs> so. It's cooling, let things cool down. Nirvana is where 
the tumult and the passion and the blindness of samsara are left behind. But here we are. Matthew Arnold said, we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. So Matthew Arnold describes samsara that way. How could he have said it so well? <laughs> That's what I ask myself every time I think about that poem. He called this a darkling plain. Plain where we don't really see, really, what's going on. We just know that there's suffering. And I suppose that's why we take up Zazen. Because sometimes this birth and death is no fun. We would like our suffering to cool down. We'd like the dawn to come to this darkling plain. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's said sometimes that the rooster, when it crows before the dawn, believes that it, it causes the sun to rise. I don't, I don't really know what roosters believe, but it's possible. I suppose it's possible. And maybe we think if we do this Zazen of ours, if we really try, if we really master it, then we could cause the waves to settle down. We could cause the clouds to part. And so we sit, and we sit sometimes trying to bring the dawn. And of course, Trying to bring the dawn is totally useless. No amount of striving, no amount of trying to make it happen will settle the waves of samsara. When Buddha took up the zazen that he taught us, it was, when he took that up, it was because he realized that nothing that he had been doing was going to work. In a way, he said he took up Zazen because he failed at everything else. Not, he couldn't enlighten with any other practice. And when he did see the morning star just before dawn on the day that he awakened, his realization was that it hadn't been him sitting at all, but it had been all beings in the great earth sitting together. So when Buddha took up Zazen, he left striving behind. And he just sat. That's, we call our sitting, just sitting. In Japanese, the word is shikantaza. It means just sitting. Sitting without striving. And it makes me think of how subtle our practice is. bodies 
are always manifesting the great earth and all beings. Our bodies are always manifesting birth and death and all of our karma. And in our sitting, we just invite our minds to let go. And not to get caught up in our practiced stories, but to just allow ourselves to enter into this city, this birth and death. And that's important. We don't sit in the middle of life. We sit in the middle of life and death. We sit in the middle of all of our joy and all of our hurt. Because in our sitting, nothing is excluded. You know, something that we don't like happens in Zazen, we allow it. We accept it. In our sitting, nothing is included, not even all the ego-driven stories that our mind produces. Not, not any of our struggle in flight is uh, excluded. In our sitting, we open completely to the whole world, to the world of life, which means opening to the world that has death as well. And our Sangha has really had to face this recently. Um, friend Karen, who can't be here tonight, her cousin Bobby uh, passed away just a few few days ago. And uh, Douglas's mother, you know, passed away a little while ago. My aunt passed away a little while ago. And not only that, Nick's mother has a serious illness and Anuja's father has a serious illness, and Mary's husband has a serious illness. We really have had to face that death is right there in the middle of life. Can't be separated. We can't purify samsara from the things we don't like and make it nirvana. to really um, deal with our losses and our fears, to really open up to them. We have to go beyond. We have to go beyond our ideas about good and bad, our ideas about what we want and what we don't want. We go beyond our ideas of, about life as separate from death. And we have to be willing to be part of all of it. What, uh, what we call the full catastrophe, mm -hmm. right, to be part of the whole thing. So I want to remind you of a story of two monks. This is from the collection called The Blue Cliff Record. And uh, monks are Zengen, and his teacher, Dogo. And they went to a house where a person had died. They went to a house to make a condolence call. And 
when they went in, you know, family was there, friends were there, coffin was right there. And Zengen went up to the coffin and he put his hand on it and he said to his teacher, Dogo, alive or dead? <laughs> <laughs> and his teacher said, I will not say alive and I will not say dead. And Zenkin was pretty impatient. He said, why won't you say? And Dogo said, I won't say. So they paid their condolence call. They probably did a service like the service that we, we did today. And they left, but as they were walking back to the monastery, Zengen stopped, and he stopped his teacher, Dogo, and he said, uh, tell me right away, teacher. If you don't tell me, I will hit you. <laughs> Not typical for monks, but sometimes it happens. <laughs> if you don't tell me, I will hit you. And Dogo says, I, I won't say. <laughs> You may hit me, but I won't say. And Zengen then hit him. So it's interesting to reflect on what was going on in this, right? What was, what was happening with this monk Zengen? Uh, we think that at least he was a little naive, but maybe even we think he's a little unbalanced. Right to to take the matter that far, right? The good thing about Zengen is he asks the perfect question for the situation. He puts his hand on the casket and he says, "Alive or dead?" That's really the question to ask, because, like his teacher Dogo said, well, you can't say alive, but you can't even really say dead either. Dead would mean that nothing's happening. But of course, physically things are happening. But also just the karma that the poor guy generated in his life is going on and on and on forever. His whole family is being driven forward by that karma. So really, is he dead? That's not quite right either. So Zengen asks the great question, but he kind of stumbles past it, right? Um, it would be interesting to know what kind of story was going through his head that made him think it would be a good idea to hit his teacher. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, you know, he did it out of confusion. Maybe he was greedy. He wanted the Dharma right now. <laughs> and uh, he was sure his teacher could give it to him. you know, facing a casket, there are questions that should be asked. And anyone could give the conventional answer, answer, okay, dead, and not give it a second thought. But when we're confronted by the reality of birth and death, as we are all the time, and as many of us have been recently with deaths and illness in our families, 
we should really try to go deeper. What really is this birth and death, this samsara? And who are we in it? That's the question we should ask ourselves. The answer is not simple. When I walk down an aisle in a grocery store, and I compare the prices on two cans of beans. I am channeling my late aunt, Frances, who was an Olympic shopper. <laughs> she was like the best shopper in the world. She would read every label and, you know, not a penny's difference in the price, or not a uh, milligram's difference in the amount of sodium would escape her notice. She was, you know, tremendous at this. <laughs> the best I've ever seen. But when I study, you know, the labels, who is it really that is studying those labels? I mean, I didn't make that up, right? It would probably never have occurred to me to study those labels, except that that karma, which flows through my body now, was generated by my Aunt Frances. So who is it? that stands there in the aisle and looks at the price of beans. We could ask the question at that point, alive or dead? Because all these things, all this karma flows together. One of the commentators who wrote about this story of Zengen and Adogo said, uh, from beginning to end, the entire capacity is being put to use. Nothing is ever left out. The entire capacity, all beings in the great earth, is being put to use in every event. The world, the world, the holy world, emerges at every moment and in everything. We're always receiving and using the whole world. However, the commentary said, if we make up uh, rationalizations, and if we hesitate and ponder, then it will be impossible to see what's really going on. And this was true of Zengen. You know, he needed an answer. And his kind of confused relationship with his teacher blinded him to the truth of what was happening right there in the room. When Doko said, I won't say it, he was actually trying to teach him something about how it can't be said, right? Alive or dead. But Zengen took it that Dogo was withholding the Dharma from him rather than giving it to him. So he was pretty confused. He didn't see what was going on. He didn't see what was going on, we imagine, because some inner need was so strong that he couldn't see it. And we know that this happens to us, right? All we have to do is reflect on what happens if somebody says something to us that's uh, critical or hurtful, 
or rejecting. Inevitably, a story arises about that person being mean, right? Or uh, bad in some way. So we understand Zengen completely because we've been there. Maybe we, no, nobody here has hit their teacher, so that's good. But we've been in that spot where, you know, angry stories have been generated and where we can't really see what the truth of the situation is. And uh, we know it's painful to not get what we want. That's what Buddha taught. Not getting what we want is suffering. Especially if there's something that we think would relieve our suffering, like the Dharma. To not get that can be very upsetting. Of course, Zengen was getting it, but he couldn't see it. So I think this is what Zengen is dealing with in this encounter. He, uh, he asks a good Dharma question, then he falls into some very personalized hearing of the answer. So he doesn't hear the answer at all. And we know from our own lives that these personalized stories can really be endless and they can hijack us almost at any time. I mean, in our zazen, they come up all the time, right? And they hijack our awareness of our breath. But in our lives, They really take us over. If, if someone doesn't meet our needs, it makes us seem, it makes it seem to us like we're not important to them. Or they don't care about our feelings. And that can start a story that will stir us up for a long time. We think of like, what we would say in return to the person who criticized us, right? And they cycle through our lives again and again, these stories. That's samsara. But if we take a breath in the middle of one of those stories, and we look around and the mist could clear a little bit, what, what do we see? We see that we've had this image of ourselves that we kind of like to purify. Have no bad, but only good. And if someone says something critical to us, we see the strength of that desire to purify that image of self, to keep it it from uh, having any element of badness. We know, when we can have some distance, that we're not simply that story we tell about ourselves. But it's really hard to have that distance. Sometimes we'll defend that story to the death, right? No, I won't let you criticize me. But if we're lucky, we can take a breath, and we can open up to the whole thing. We could open up to, yes, we have good qualities, but we have faults too. 
can open up to the fact that even though we think our hurt is special, there are people out there who have even more hurt than us, right? And sometimes they act out of that hurt, just the way we act out of ours. Probably the biggest difference between ourselves and the person who uh, hurt us or rejected us is that that person in that moment wasn't lucky and wasn't able to take a breath and step outside of his or her story, but just acted it out. Probably the person who said something hurtful uh, was not able to steer the course that they wanted to steer through this birth and death. A couple weeks ago, Anuj was telling, uh, telling us about a uh, situation he was in where he really wanted to say some hurtful things to a person who had just uh, really confronted him. And so he really wanted to say that, but he kind of took a breath and somehow the bodhisattva vow came to his mind, you know, vow to save all sentient beings. And he was just stunned because here was whatever story he was telling in his mind, in his mind and what he wanted to say to that person to get back at her. And here was the bodhisattva vow, <laughs> which said, uh, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. And he said, it was like they came from two different planets, <laughs> right? Sometimes, you know, our stories, like I'm saying, hijack us. And they make us blind to how we really want to be in the world. He said his rule was, if the story that I'm telling doesn't align with the Bodhisattva vow, then it's time to take another breath. Right? And settle down. Let the story settle down. So there is a happy ending to our story about Zengen. Zengen later came to a small temple where he heard a workman reciting the Avalokiteshvara chapter of the Lotus Sutra. Chapter where it says, to those who would attain salvation as monks, the Bodhisattva of Compassion appears as a monk to expound the Dharma for them. And suddenly, Zenkin was greatly enlightened. And he said, at that time, I was wrongly suspicious of my teacher. How was I to know, he said, that this affair isn't in words and phrases. That the Dharma couldn't be conveyed by some verbal answer at that point. That the, the truth of life and death couldn't be expressed in one concept. He realized, and this is the part that I like, that his teacher wasn't as withholding as he thought he was. <laughs> Actually, that his teacher was Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. <laughs>
Dogol tried to help Zengen see into the great matter of life and death. And there was a story he told himself about his teacher withholding the answer. And it blinded him to the teaching that was being given so freely. When his hand touched a casket, or when his teacher said, I can't say a lie, then I can't say death. Now the part that I don't like about this enlightenment of Zengen is that it sounds to me like it's just another story. He had told the story before about how, how his teacher was mean and frustrated and not giving him the Dharma. And now he tells the story about how his teacher is the Bodhisattva of compassion and he was bringing him the Dharma all along. So, I think the teaching that Dogo was trying to give was a teaching of not getting caught up in any story. Not getting caught up in a story about death, but not getting caught up in a story about life either. Um, but we can't blame him for getting caught up. The commentator to this story says, uh, even someone who is great beyond measure can be whirled around in the stream of words. We know that the stream of words that goes on constantly in samsara can uh, easily lead us to be harmful instead of healthy. The issue is, how do we extricate ourselves? from that stream of words, from all of our stories. You know, when we wake up in the morning, we don't have to figure out how to do it. We don't have to tell ourselves a story about waking up. We just wake up. And then the story starts. The story is, oh, now I'm awake. And whatever we have to say about waking up in the morning, we first have to wake up in order to say it. And the story is no help to waking up, and we don't need a story to wake up. We just do it. Our stories are not really the gate to living the life that we want to live. Figuring out the right philosophy is not the gate to the life we want to live. What Zenkin didn't see was that just paying that condolence call was the gate. Taking care of this life and death is the gate. Our vow, our vow to save all beings is the gate that wakes us up. And in our zazen, being willing to be wholehearted in our zazen and just sit in the middle of birth and death, to sit in the middle of our caring 
and are hurt. That's the gate. It's really pretty simple. A friend of mine who had cancer and really almost died, but fortunately lives to this day. It's great. Um, she said she realized before that last surgery that she went to that she might not have awakened from, she realized that life was very simple, really. The answer that we were all seeking was really very simple. It was just that we should help each other, <laughs> right? She realized that what awakened her from, from her stories about good and bad, from her life, stories about life and death, was that impulse just to help each other. And it's good to have some kind of touchstone that will help us drop out of the stories that we tell in our mind and drop into the whole of life and death. Maybe it's the vow to save all beings is the touchstone. Maybe it's our impulse to care for each other. That's the touchstone. But these, these directions that we hold in our life, these are the key to dropping out of samsara. Or maybe I'll say it this way, to dropping completely into samsara and finding nirvana. Let me pause for a second and ask for people's thoughts or questions or reactions. Um, um, <clears throat> this is going to have to hopefully make some sense as it comes out. Okay, well, be patient. Um, but what I'm thinking is that the stories that we tell ourselves, I, I, I agree with what you said as far as so they can lead to great bad things because um, when stories are so strong in terms of defining uh, oneself in the world then and they're not seen as um, something in context then you know you have to defend at all costs um, the, the characters in that story especially yourself um, you know I, I sometimes wonder that, you know, in, in, in the past when stories were more, from what I think of as stories were more um, cohesive in some ways, that people had a greater sense of meaning and purpose. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, they were more vulnerable uh, to um, extreme irrationality. Mm -hmm. But it seems like now um, people's stories are more fragmented in some way, and um, it provides a little less, less security, but um, in that would be sort of like why there, there's so, you know, so much, so many mental health issues. comes to uh, comes to suffering um, uh, and accepting life and death um, 
you know, and, and being being present with it. Um, and the, the karma. And what I'm trying to say is is that um, you know, when it comes to you know, distilling life to something very simple, like helping other people, um, you know, it's. Uh, stories yeah. because um, by opening up to um, something beyond stories there's you get in touch with the interconnectedness and I think that's where the compassion comes in um, where you know that's just a, a simple way of, of, of you know establishing you know or nurturing that or Could, could I say something about what I'm what I'm hearing from what you're saying? So I thought it was really interesting for you to say that uh, um, sometimes when stories are really coherent and tight, people get a lot of meaning out of that. If we all shared the same story about what was good and right in the world and how we sh should achieve it, um, that would it would bring a lot of meaning. But uh, you also point out sometimes that holding a story rigidly like that um, can cause great harm. So I, I think that that's true. You know, any story that we hold too rigidly could really cause harm, even though we try to defend it because it brings us meaning still to cause great harm. And it's interesting because our practice is at least developing some ability not to hold our stories so tightly, right? Not, not to say that we don't have our Buddhist stories, our Zen stories. Look, I've spent this evening telling you about a Zen story. But, uh, but it's interesting, you know, our stories usually are things that help us to go beyond uh, our are uh, kind of limited concepts of the world, and to see things in a broader way. I think uh, Zengen was attempting to create a story. Yes. And um, Dogo was sort of in trying to interrupt that, that narrative. Exactly. Zengen wanted a story that would explain, well, how is it with life and death? And, and Dogo was interrupting that. And that's why Zingen gets so mad, right? Other thoughts? Did anybody have any other than the reactions they wanted to share? Um, I'm listening to how to change your brain. How to change your mind. How to change your mind? It's about psychedelic. Yes. Journalist. Yeah, he's a really famous guy. Yeah. Yeah, so and it's and it sort of reflect it's so a compare and contrast, a lot of compare with people who have had psychedelic experiences to Buddhist and Zen practice, and they're finding that part of it is like, like whatever way it impacts the brain, 
uh, sort of breaks down the parts of the brain that create the story of self. Exactly. Um, and so people have very similar reports. You could like read a report of someone's description of a psychedelic experience with someone who's meditated for a very long time, and it sounds very similar uh, about interconnectedness and feeling and transcending self and uh, being more open. Um, so it's just this talk it tonight is, is reflecting a lot of what I've been thinking about yeah. and hearing in the, in the uh, book. Um, but I think that you know it's two different ways of achieving a very similar way of being with the world. Interesting. Um, yeah. And and what it takes to actually be connected with others, and, and how much of that sense of self is, it becomes rigid over time. Mm-hmm. And as we live life, we we like our brains form in a way yeah. uh, that that like helps us sort of make decisions faster, uh, but it doesn't help us connect with others. It yeah. Help us connect with the world. Yeah. In what ways, like spiritual practice, can be a path to that, uh, like nirvana or versus samsara, um, or you know by chemical means. But yeah, just I don't know if that I'm adding anything. To that, sure, but it's, it's that's what's been. that's a great book. I, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, uh, I liked what he said about um, uh, what happens as we grow up is the entropy in our, our brains, the entropy is kind of the, uh, the tendency towards disorder rather than order. The entropy in our brains uh, diminishes. So that by the time we're adults, we've got no entropy in our brains anymore. It's kind of fixed and rigid, right? He said, uh, one of the things meditation does, or one of the things psychedelics do, is they reintroduce some entropy in our brains, make our brains a little bit younger, you know, and uh, I thought that was an interesting description, you know, that allow us to hold the stories a little more loosely. Yeah. It seems that Zen does not attempt just to erase your story of yourself. Uh, absolutely. Would you say that is true? It also, uh, it replaces it with one that is, uh, Maybe a little more helpful. It's not just that you erase it. We, we, I feel like I have more of, or, or a different story at least. Uh-huh. Now that I practice sin more, one that uh, it's not just about you. It's just about me. Yeah. Things bigger than me, or uh, or just who I who I am as a as a Buddhist as a Zen sure. practitioner. Yeah. So it's uh, I. I definitely see it as uh, both of those things. It's not just the total absence of the story. That would be great. But uh, we think that way. Yeah. People think with, in terms of stories. What, do, what are your thoughts in that regard? Oh, I agree. The total absence of a story um, does now not allow us to interact with the world at all. <laughs> right? we, we have to have some way of you know, conceptualizing things. So we do have stories, like about the Bodhisattva of Compassion, that help us interact with the world in a way that feels like it's right to us. And the other thing I think is that I don't, I wouldn't say that our story erases, I mean our practice erases our story about ourselves. I don't know if it can be erased. Good point, yes. It might be a little like an Etch-a-Sketch. It could be temporarily <laughs> erased, but it's going to come back, right? <laughs> right? It's going to reconstitute it itself. So that's okay. 
you know, we don't have to kill it. We don't have to kill the story of self. In fact, that would be trying to purify instead of be open to everything that's here. So, yeah. Other thoughts or questions? Okay, great. Good talking with you tonight.